0: Welcome to Voices from the Vernacular Music Center. I'm Roger Landis. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is a podcast from the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University. The Vernacular Music Center is a center for teaching,
1: research, and advocacy in the world's vernacular musics and dance. That is, musics and dance which are learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory.
0: In this second series, produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts, We talk about how the VMC engages with music and dance from around the world, and about the connections and the history and the community meaning of these art forms. We
1: hear from players, scholars, dancers, builders, and listeners about times and places and people, and together we discover and celebrate the webs of human meaning which connect all of them. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to continue with our series of guest interviews, talking to friends and professional acquaintances from across the worlds of music, dance, theater, and the humanities about why and how they do what
0: they do. So Nick, we would like to start these guest episodes by inviting people like yourself to reflect upon the idea of the vernacular, whatever that means to you, and how it intersects with the work that you do. And just maybe before that, we could ask you to start out by telling us about your day job and about the life events that brought you to this place.
2: All right. So uh, my day job is uh, being a teacher in the, in school in, uh, we've got in Quebec. It's called C-F-E-R. It's school for uh, guys and girls from 14 to 18 years old. So we have them three or four years, and we try to bring them from, you know, uh, uh, young, young persons that maybe are looking for a sense in their life. And then we bring in, bring them to discover who they are, to be able to, to be a participant in life, in the, the place where they live, to find a job that they chose and not a job that they had to do to make money, to have money. So that's, that's my main job. And I'm working with people with disabilities since maybe 25 years. Um, and, uh, well, that's, that's, that's the, the principal thing. So I'm not a music teacher uh, because I don't know any theory in music. Um, um, uh, but I, I use the music to, at school with the, 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 the teenagers because uh, they find in me someone who is not a real teacher in music. It's, so they, we have fun in making music. Uh, it's, no, it's no stress. Uh, and uh, well, every year it changes. So, the, I had three real, real good musicians. Uh, one of them was a guy with, um, I don't know, in French we say t- autistic, one autistic guy, really, really good musician, perfect ear. So, when I played the bagpipes, it was sometimes tough for him. <laughs> and, uh, uh, well, the, what can I say more about my job? Well, I love this job <laughs> a lot because the the kids they give you back a lot of things you know they ask they ask a lot but they give back a lot yeah. Yeah. You know I
0: I'm, so I'm we were chatting just before we opened the microphones and I was so happy that you had mentioned the nature of the work that you do as a teacher because for us in the vernacular music center the music and the dancing and the improvisation and the singing and the theater th- those are part of what we do but A really core value that we have in the VMC is the idea of creating community and of finding spaces for many diverse people within a community so that no one has to feel left out. No one has to feel that they aren't good enough or lack talent. And so what you're saying about teaching students of different abilities is, I would say, very consistent with what we think in the VMC.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, I think I think you know I I had myself a really uh, tough school parcours. Okay, it was school was tough for me. I just discovered when I was thirty five years old that um, I had a TDAH. So and then I began to understand. Okay, that's why I wasn't able to 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 pass two hours sitting on a chair and listening to a, t- a teacher. Um, and I think that maybe. It, that's why I became a, a teacher.
0: <laughs> and so, TDah would that be in in what's the acronym stand for, Nick? Uh, I think I know uh, for the listener. Um,
2: trouble. Uh, let me translate in my head. Attention, or just at, in the at, French, à la française. Uh, trouble déficitaire de l'attention, avec hyperactivité. With hyperactivity. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Oui, yeah. Uh, we can, We say ADHD, ADHD. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Same thing. I, we we thought that was that was the case. So, boy. <laughs> There, there are so many ways that so many places this conversation could go, and this makes it so much richer. So, thank you for sharing that with us. Good. So, Nick,
1: did you did I understand you to say that you were thirty five when you came to that understanding that that was a yes. condition that you had, yes, yes, and it explained your experience in school? Yes, I guess. exactly,
2: exactly. And the way the the way I learn things, because mm-hmm. I, I, you know, being ADHD doesn't mean you can't learn anything, but you have to discover how to learn. Uh, and then uh, I, I can compare that in, in music. You know, a lot of traditional musicians, they, they learn by ear without a specific method or the method given by here by the teacher. So it uh, could be helpful too.
1: Could you say something about how you think about your own music making and your growing up? I don't know when you started playing. It would be interesting to know. But what is your understanding today of, of how music Interacted with that part of of your uh, uh, of your life.
2: Okay. Well, I think you know the, I, when you're a musician, you're always confronted to other musicians that came from mm-hmm. different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And when I began the, the, to play the bagpipes, French bagpipes, which are my, the main instrument I practice, uh, my friend who introduced me in that world, he's a really traditional, learned. Uh, uh, musician so we only read you can't play by ear uh isn't he really work with you know metronomic uh, metronome and uh making uh, in french we say gam. da 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 da, da, da. The gamut yeah yeah and we you know yeah. I tried and I tried it but I wasn't really happy then I met another guy that said no no you don't need that you know you just need to practice your ear okay and um I tried I think uh, I always struggle with a lot of things in music, like tempos and respect the tempos and things like this. But on another side, it I can learn tunes really, really fast. So I, I don't know how many tunes I know, but I learn them fast. In, I must say in French traditional music, it, it's really, really complex songs. You know, if you compare it to like Irish music or Quebecois music with... May have a lot of notes. There's maybe sometimes less notes, and um, and yes, it my ADHD interferes uh, in the fact that when I play, I get to keep in mind that I gotta be concentrate. It's, it's maybe seems ridiculous like this, but you know, in I'm in my head, and I have to say, no, no, you're playing now. Stop thinking about the next tune you'll play. Play, just play now.
0: It's fascinating to me. This is it's wonderful. I think this might be the first time on the podcast when we've talked about um, different sorts of learning styles or different sorts of learning profiles. But just to think about how learning by ear and in the memory, which we talk about a great deal, right? Learning by by listening and imitating and then correcting. Learning by ear. Learning in the memory. Learning in the body. It's fascinating to me to put that in terms of learning profiles and neurodiversity and because of ways that perhaps this learning by ear, by imitation, by observation is actually uniquely valuable for someone with TDHD, for example, because it it does not require that you use a visual notation or it does not require that you that you have to be all playing together in a classroom situation it's a very very different learning environment
2: yes but you know I, i'm a i'm a i'm an immigrant uh, I, I was born in france and when i was at school when i was young i, I still had the french accent and uh, i got maybe some bullying because of that so i had to i, I tried to imitate others you know, and be like a chameleon, you know, I don't want people to know when, I know when I was a kid, you know, to know that I was different, but they, they keep noticing it. So I was trying to understand the language, the expressions. And when I came home to talk with my parents, because like, for example, in, in French Canada, when we talk about cars, we use a lot of Anglicism so uh, a bumper which is called a parechoc in french Then my, my my the other kids they said to me oh, you know my my dad has a car and a big metal bumper in front and when i came home i said papa what what is a bumper and he said oh you don't need to know that just use parechoc uh, yeah, Yeah, well, but you know at school parechoc uh, it's just not it's not really good for me you know <laughs> I so i think when i was really young i had to to observe to try to understand and to be, and maybe sometimes being like a chameleon. So it eases me today now to l- learn styles and things like this, I think.
1: How old were you, were you when you started playing music? Uh,
2: really playing, you know, because I, w- I always had some guitars and things like this, but not really playing. But really playing, maybe 15, 16?
1: When you were fifteen and you started playing seriously, were you past the time of feeling uh, different?
2: Yes, because uh, you know, like a lot of teenagers, when you you're a teenager, you want to be different, right. So it was easy for me because first, I'm six foot six. <laughs> Secondly, I'm French. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, I was, you know, being a, being a punk for me was the best way to, to, you know, uh, going in a revolt against my parents and against uh, the rest of the society. But I, I don't know about what I was re- revolt, but <laughs> that's, that's the way I express it.
0: I'm reminded of an old joke that I learned in my rock and roll band days to the effect that lead singers in rock bands are always handsome and they become singers because they could always get a date on a Saturday night. And guitar players in rock and roll, lead guitar players in rock and roll bands, are always not handsome because they couldn't get a date and they stayed home and practiced. I may resemble that remark. <laughs> Myself
1: also, <laughs> uh, glass houses. Um, both Chris and I started out as guitarists before we branched out on various other uh, folkloric instruments. Um, so Nick, you did you take up the conamuse in when you were fifteen?
2: No, no in fact the my parents used are really they are uh, in French we say meloman. So they listened to a lot of music now, mostly classical music. But when I was younger, you know, there was some Alan Stivel and Monjoya and the Pogues. And but my father bought me uh, records from Nina Hagen or The Clash, you know, and uh, I discovered I was listening to Kraftwerk when I was at uh, primary mm-hmm. school. So there was a lot, a lot of music, but all with the sound in the, the traditional mu- uh, vinyls that we had at home, I always was pleased with the sound of the those instruments, the drone instruments, the multi-stringed instruments, and um, I always dreamed of playing bagpipes. But at those times, finding a set of bagpipes in French Canada, it was you have to be a military, you know. But I come from a hippie family, so it was no, that wasn't possible for me to be a, a military. And um, so, no bagpipes. They came really later when I was uh, 22, I think 22, 23.
1: How did you get started?
2: Well, I was one year in France with my, uh, my, my girlfriend to finish my uh, third year at university. And uh, we were in Lyon and I had to make um, an internship and it was in a traditional music center. And the two uh, directors were Jean Blanchard and Eric Mobel, which are two great masters of the revival of the French piping. So, you know, I was with them every day. And uh, Jean uh, understood really fast that I was fascinated by the pipes. And he just gave me a set of pipes and he said, Play with them and give me back, give me them back uh, when you, you go back to Quebec. So I had one year trying to quick, 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 <laughs> making strange sounds in my apartment or, or uh, around the, the Rhone, which is the, the, the river that passed through Lyon. So that's my first set of pipes was there, right? 1998, I think.
1: How old were you when you immigrated to Canada?
2: Three years old.
1: So 15 years later, I'm not. You didn't say how old you were when you went back to France for that year.
2: I was were, uh, in, well because I came back to France a lot of times, but mm-hmm. that this was for this with the pipes. It was in 1998, so I was maybe how how, how old I was. I let me think. Nine plus uh, ten is 10, Maybe 25, 26.
1: Okay. And is that the longest period of time you've spent in France since you immigrated?
2: Uh, where, where I've I spent. Three, two times one year because when I was sixteen years uh, years old, I won a conquest, and I won one year in a, a rock engraving school. So as I didn't know what to do in life, I said, "Well, why not being in France, uh, my roots, you know, <laughs> and uh, discover a new a new way of uh, express myself in an art artistic way."
1: So. That year that you had with the bagpipes in Lyon, hmm. um, did you have any instruction from Jean Blanchard or Eric Mobel?
2: Well, no. They just say keep keep on playing. If you like it, uh-huh. play, and uh, you know, listen listen to music. So I. I was uh, every week at the, 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 the library, the big library, and, you know, looking for CDs and books and listening to CDs and trying to find gigs where I can see pipers and talk with pipers. And at the end of my year, we go to, with my girlfriend at Saint-Chartier, uh-huh. which is a big, big, big event that is now in another place and named now uh, Le Son Continue. And then I met all those pipe makers and i bought i bought my first set of uh, low d pipes from a guy named serge durin which is a really Uh good good maker Uh and so after that it was two years two long years of waiting and then my pipes arrived during a really cold february month and it was the beginning of the story
0: do you have a piece of music that we could listen to something that you could uh, suggest maybe there's a piece we can uh, listen later.
2: So Yes, yes, uh, you could listen or we could listen to um, a band named La Perdrie Rouge which is a trio with a low C set of bagpipes high G and a hurdy-gurdy it was filmed uh, in uh, Le Son Continu and it's, uh, it's a bourré de temps.
1: So we were just listening to the audio from a video clip uh, shared by our guest, Nick Gerardin. Um, This clip was recorded in 2015 at uh, the big festival in the uh, center of France called Le Saint Continu. It just so happens I was there that year. I didn't see the scene that's in the video. I wish I had. I think it was the day before I arrived. But it's a trio with two sets of bagpipes, one set pitched in C, low C another set pitched in G higher, and then a Viola Rue, the hurdy-gurdy, playing kind of in the middle of those two sets of pipes. Beautiful music, the uh, bourrée du tom. So Nick, um, what is your experience of dancing or playing for dancing? How do you relate as a musician who plays the cornemuse as a musician born in France and trained in France to a certain extent and living all these years in Canada What's your experience of interfacing with dance or dancing yourself?
2: Well, for, for the, uh, I'm not a dancer. I'm an awful dancer. Uh, the first time we were in saint Chartier with my girlfriend, we tried to, you know, after after when the festival is over, uh, during the night, the people, they get out, they have big stages and, and you can dance, you know, them everywhere. And there was a waltz, so I said, well, a waltz, I, can, I think I can do a waltz. Uh, and we tried, but now after five minutes, a couple that was sit in the grass, just look at us with the sad face. okay, okay, come, guys, come with us and they try to show me, but no, I'm like a two by four, you know, i I, I can't move myself. I'm, I'm I'm like a robot, I'm not a good dancer. Uh, oh. But I really enjoy to play for dancing because that's you know that even if I like to I love to listen to this music, all those musics, but they they all, almost all of them have a purpose. It's for the dancers, so um, um, we. I don't have a lot of opportunities to play for dance because ball folk here it began only, you know, like so three four years ago. A guy in Quebec City uh, start a, a ball folk band and they invite me, so sometimes I was there. But the pandemic stops everything. I hope it will come back. <clears throat> uh, it's a great way to improve your playing. Because if you play, especially some dancers like bourre Trois Temps, if you play too fast, uh, only the really, really good dancer will, will be able to dance. So uh, you have to. You, I learned to respect the tempo, and you know that when you make ball folk, it's not always really go- good uh, mic setup. Uh, no monitors, and uh, when you play the pipes, you're loud, and it's you have so you have to observe a lot the other musicians to be in phase, and that's that's a uh, I learned a lot about this, and of course, some new repertoire every time, which is good.
0: There's something that we talk about, Roger and myself and some of the musicians and dancers that we work with in playing music from the French tradition, that where we are or where we were before the pandemic and where we hope that we will be again in the American Southwest, that there is not much in the way of dancing there. We have a few friends, including one friend in particular, who's an expert dancer and has taught others and has been to Le Sans Continue. Um, but it is challenging. And we talk about this a lot on our podcast to learn a music, to seek to learn a music at a geographical distance from where the music is, is very vital. Yeah. Not necessarily from where it begins, but for example, um, Roger and I are born in the states. Both of us have come into playing other musics, Irish music especially from outside, and it is challenging to to make it work at a distance. Can can you talk about that? Uh, because I know that you know you're in French Canada, but you are you've spoken about being an immigrant yourself, and maybe we can put it in terms of what is it about being at some place like uh, Le Sans continue that what does that give? those of us who come from outside france or come back to france what is what does that experience do do you think
2: you mean traveling in the are in the origins of the music i play yeah well it's a lot because okay seeing people play together for example when you see uh, cabrette players uh, the cabrette which is the the the, the bagpipe from auvergne uh, it's a really technique it's Technical instrument, you know, the st- st- fingering is 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 different, uh, uh, the temperament is different, uh, and there is a lot of different ways to approach. Like maybe like you can compare to Julian pipes, you know. In the past times, there was there well there was uh, people playing really staccato, and there were the travelers that were playing more legato, and but you have the same thing in the cabrette, and there is a large a large. In French, it's a large, large panel of different approaches. But when you see the real musicians from the place, like old guys playing a bourre with an accordion, and then after that you see a young guy like Jacques Pueche, which is a really, really good cabaret player, playing the same tune in his way, then you begin to understand that okay, okay, I can do this. I can What What do they have in common? What is different? From them, and what can I take with me? What can I appropriate myself? So that's 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 one of the thing. Seeing the others playing and talking with the makers, you know, when you talk about, about with a pipe maker, and uh, especially pipe makers, you know, two guys like I think like Raphael Janin and Nicola Galeazzi, the both guys made center France bagpipes. The both both of them work on early bore. Uh, low low pitch pipes. They uh, they make some research, but they, they make a parallel work, maybe like uh, Bernard Blanc and Rémy Dubois made during the seventies. And you talk with them, and you know when they explained me for the first time that there is a double cone in our pipes, and the early pipes, the cone was the the second cone was a little bit higher, so it gave a, 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 a like a in between minor major third on the. Or old set of pipes so you listen to older recordings and then you begin to understand okay that's why they were playing this way because they had to 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 uh fill a hole that i don't have to to fill with modern pipes so it changed the way you play
1: that's fascinating and um one one of our mutual acquaintances nick um john swain yeah. wrote an article for the english uh bagpipe society uh, newsletter a couple of years ago, um, chanter it's called. Uh, he wrote an article on the cabrette and its tuning because that's one thing that John has researched a lot. And his his opinion is that that third, if you're going from the bottom note, like if the cabrette is in G, so you're talking about the B, the B natural, right, is a little flatter than yeah the the way a modern instrument would have. His conclusion was. That it's functional because of its relationship to the C. If you're playing the these bagpipes can play basically in two keys and related modes. You can play in in with all your fingers down that note, you get a you get a in this case a G major scale, or you can lift the right hand off and you get a, a major scale from that note. And so his conclusion was the old pipe makers had made a a, a decision to have an in-between note that would function, have a different function. When you're playing in C, which I thought was fascinating, it's interesting yeah. that you bring that up. Yeah, and it's it for.
2: for th- please continue.
1: Oh, I was just going to say for the, uh, not to get too deep in the weeds here, but we do, we do refer to intonation and things in in previous uh, uh, episodes. So I think this might be of interest to some readers.
2: Yes, and it's always it's always it's always a, a kind of a compromise, you no? Know? Mm-hmm. Because the 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 balance. Of the the of uh, the, the tuning in an, especially the bagpipes, it's always a compromise. You know, if you you make it more with the equal temperament, you will lose harmonics in the lower notes. Mm-hmm. You know, I have uh, my my low my low set of pipes. It's the early bore pipes, and I like them because the harmonics in the lowest notes are really beautiful. The 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 timber not the the. the, the in French, we say "timbre." I don't know about this timbre. Mm-hmm. The sound yes. is more richer, but it's more complicated to have some notes. I prefer to play slower, but with a beautiful sound.
0: It's it is uh, in fact it is something as Roger said that we talk about a lot in the in the podcast. The degree to which between generations, sometimes of instruments or players, or between changes of location, the instrument. Or changes of usage where an instrument played solo, but now it's playing with other instruments. Or two players from different regions come together. Um, I was chuckling when Roger was saying, "Oh, yeah, they they essentially they tuned it so that that note was really good for playing in C, but not quite so perfect for playing in G." And I thought, right, because all the diatonic accordion players, like myself, would rather play in C, and so. The pipers have to say, oh, mon dieu, I've got to play with these accordion players with their horrible fixed notes. Oh, I guess I have to compromise now that I'm in Paris and playing in the cafes. Yeah. So it's totally on point. And it gets to, even though it sounds a bit esoteric, maybe if you're not into the details of intonation, it says all kinds of things about people and where they come from and how they're meeting, as you were saying, and trying to find a common ground. Yes, yes. And it touches on
1: a subject that I'm interested in and that Chris and I both um, talk about in our teaching uh, about context for music. And when the context for a specific music changes, for instance, the difference between say a traditional music in its home region. And then when that uh, with immigrants, it's taken to a new place, there's a new context. And so it becomes in some ways a diasporic music. Uh, the context changes often the music changes have do you feel when you're playing as a, as an instrumentalist in canada and then back in france do you feel like the context changes your experience of the music
2: yes i, I was the first when i was in france playing in front of those pipers was at most stressful, because here I'm like a, a um, local bizarre thing, you know, <laughs> the tall guy that plays a strange, strange instrument that which is not like the the Highland pipe they know. Over there, when you play, yeah. So I play here. If I play well, they say, "Oh wow, that's really good." You go there, you play the thing, you play the best, and people they pass beside you said, so, oh, "Okay, <laughs> it's not the same thing." But as I think uh, Chris said at the beginning, it, um, traditional music is really for everybody, uh, and that's what I enjoy. You can play in a jam, you know, and there's not a master telling the others to listen to him, and then maybe they will have the chance to play. No, come on, play. That's what you. That's what they do. You know, you go at you go at leçon continue. You have a set of pipes. You sit down. Someone come and say, "Come okay, on, please." we play, we play together or join us, you know, and, and I really appreciate that aspect of uh, being invited and um, being able to learn. You know,
0: you know I, I th- I'm I so glad that you said that uh, about the fact that, especially for people like Roger and myself, and it sounds as if in some ways for you as well, Nick, to come from outside of music, to be learning it at a distance or to be learning it later on, it can be quite intimidating. I can experience it. It's quite intimidating to know, well, how do I find my way in? And I was struck when Roger mentioned that the track that we heard earlier was recorded at Les Sans Continues, and Roger said, oh, actually, I was there at Les Sommes And Roger and I have, have spoken, and he's written some about being someone who doesn't yet have the language or doesn't, doesn't do the dances. And and. The vibe of that, and and how important it is in a site like Saint Chartier or or Les Saint-Continue, how important it is that people should feel invited in.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, you go in a, I think it's, I don't know how it is in your place, but here it's the same thing. You go in a festival, and in the jam, there is the beginners, there's the good players, and there was the guy that was on stage five minutes before. And that's really different, I think, from the rock scene, for example. Okay. Um, uh, he, it's, there's, of course, there is some ego things and there is uh, some people that think they are the best and the, the world cannot survive without them. But ma- the great majority of players, they just want to have fun and to share and to play together and i think it will increase after this pandemic you know people will need that more and more you know <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's That's- been
0: i've been so i've been very struck by the fact that in this tradition in, in this tradition and all the things that cluster around it in this com- these communities the pandemic is it's been hard on many people everywhere in the world in for many ways and many people have faced great challenges and great loss and great trauma and this is not to equate one to another but especially in a world of music and dance in which being close to people being able to hold one another in a way that is not creepy not sexual but is emotionally yes. open it it it's it's been very stark You know, to to go to dances or to play for dances where people are dancing socially distanced or to participate in events that are online where people are dancing solo in their apartments all over the world in a Zoom room. It's been tremendously challenging. And as we emerge from this pandemic, I hope that we all can help each other find our way back to that kind of emotional connection. Yes. I I was
1: disappointed. A lot of people, I think, are heartbroken by the cancellation this year of Le Saint-Continue, which just happened about, what, three or four weeks ago. Um, They announced that they would not be able to hold the festival this year because the restrictions that continue in France uh, would preclude too much of the activity that they rely on or that people expect um i think they would have been limited simply to the stage performances uh and maybe the uh the, the luthiers' salon the the in the grove of trees um but the social distancing would have precluded the dancing and they weren't willing to do that which a decision i i realize must have been terribly difficult for them to do that the second year in a row but i really respect them uh making the effort and planning to do it and then you know virtually what must have felt like the last minute to have to have um made that announcement i uh, i think they did the right thing of course but uh i think it was very difficult um i wasn't going to be able to go this year anyway but i I hope to go next year so maybe i'll maybe we'll all see each other there
2: it's it's tough for the, the musical instrument makers too because it's a it's a market also huh so you know they they, they always said that my friends who make the pipes they say you know I don't necessarily make some new cells but people ask questions and during the year they call back you know and Le son continue was there for that you know but it would have be had been really tough because yeah know you have a set of pipes you cannot make give it to the guy could try it blow in it and then another guy you know <laughs> so yeah
1: so Nick, a few moments ago, we were talking about a different bagpipe from uh, the one that you play, or you may also play this one. But it was uh, we'd been talking about the cornemuse du son, the, the the one from the the center of France. Yes. Um, you mentioned one called the cabrette, and uh, uh, I wonder, could we? Do you have something for us to hear of with that instrument?
2: Yes, yes, uh, we could listen to Michel S. Balin, which who is a really really great specialist of the cabrette. And this tune, it's it's a a waltz from uh, Antonin Bousquetel, which is one of the great masters of the past. And there is a lot of recordings of the cabaret. That's what is interesting. So you can listen to how they played the instrument in the past. So maybe you can listen to Michel playing uh, La Valse à (laughs) Bousquetel.
1: So that was the music of the cabaret by Michel Espelin. Um Nick you mentioned the tune when you introduced it and said that it has a history. It it's associated with one of the great players uh of that of the cabaret from what the early 20th century, mid 20th century? Yeah, mid. Mid. Yeah. And and there are recordings going back of this instrument you mentioned a lot of recordings. Do they go back to like the 20s or
2: I think, yes, the earliest uh, recordings they found on the uh, wax cylinders. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I think it's like the end of Second, uh, First World War. Because mm-hmm. a, a lot of cabaret players died during the wars, of course. Huh? Uh, it's uh, So, yes. There is a lot of recordings, you know, because, you know, uh, Cornemus du Centre, there is no recordings. There is recordings from the 15s, uh, the 50s, 60s, but there is no, we don't know how they were playing. We we have the repertoire, but we don't know technically how they were playing. But the cabaret, we know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have the styles that different people, but they were all people from Paris because the cabaret is, we said it's a cabaret from Auvergne, but in fact, It's a cabaret from Auvergne, who were living in Paris. They invented this set of pipes to distinguish themselves from the other pipe players. There was a guy from Brittany. There were guys from uh, Languedoc. uh, So they want to have their own instrument, which, if you look at the cabaret, you can see that it imitates, only in appearance, the musette de cour on some aspects. Uh, um, They wore a kind of robe, the, uh, the the drone and the chanter are tied together with what we ca- what we call a, a system de boule um, so it looks but it's not absolutely not the same bore absolutely not absolutely not the same repertoire and uh, i would i would just want to say that in fact the cabrette before being named cabrette it was named musette So the origin of the the musette, the the genre, the still musical musette, like Paris accordion. Well, musette Mm -hmm. came from the name of the bagpipe because at the beginning, the people from Auvergne played with the accordions from Italian guys and then they they, they make a a dummy drone. So the drone on most of the the, the cabaret is is not even bored. Uh, And then the... To be able to play in all the keys of the accordion, and it slowly it began to disappear, and uh, the only the accordion stayed. So you can f- find when you listen to the earliest repertoire, and then you move on uh, to no more modern repertoire. You can see that on cabaret at the beginning, it's only like bourrée, trotting, sometimes Scottish waltz. And then later you can hear some tangos, paso dobles, and you know that which was the uh, music à la mode from the times, you know. So Uh the pipers try to 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 be to be à la mode them 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 too.
1: You reference the Musette de Cour, which just for our listeners who are unfamiliar with that, that's the bagpipe that was developed to a very high level of sophistication during the Baroque, during the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, which then kind of died out and is now being revived.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Roger, you, you were talking about the Musette de Cour, um, um, which was an instrument from the court it was not a popular instrument it was not a vernacular instrument it was really for you know the 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 the, the nobles um uh, but before the musette there was another instrument which is called la grande chèvre that's the name we give it we give to those instruments today we found some it's it's look it looks like a really huge chabrette and uh, when you look at the traditional chabrette, they are most like high pitch and B, uh, and they are smaller. But a guy named Eric Mobel made some research and discovered, in fact, that there is a missing link between the instrument of the court, with those, you know, those grand cornemuse, miroir, or those grand chèvres, which were special in the, in the way that they had. Two or three drones, but they were um, uh, conical drones, so double reed drones, really loud drones. And then there is 100 years without any chabrette. And then we found chabrette in Limoges, in Limousin, a lot of uh-huh. different chabrette that was for most of them uh, Frankenstein instruments, you know, <laughs> a, a part of drone of an instrument, another part of drone, a bag of another set. Uh, some people that were known for make them. Are making them, but later you can find different instruments tied together, and uh, uh, with a lot of repertoire. By the way, Eric Morvel just re-edit, re-edited his book about a Chabrette repertoire. So, if someone has an interest in reading music and some repertoire about the Chabrette, so the Chabrette is also linked to uh, the court and the people, and um, uh, it's it's a uh, it's it's renowned for the, his beauty, you yeah. because there is some mirrors on the, the 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 common stock. We don't know why there is are those mirrors. Is it to just to make it beautiful? Is there any symbolic associated with that? You know, uh, because you can find some pewter engraving on the chevrette, but you can find some pewter engraving on the early low low bagpipes from Cornemus du Centre. And uh, was it Freemason symbolic? Was it Catholic symbols? We don't know exactly today. The only thing we know it is that they are really gorgeous bagpipes. <laughs> So, this was Philippe Ancelin on the fiddle and Nicolas Rousier on the chabrette. It's a chabrette he builds himself. He's a musical instrument builder and a musician. He builds, uh, he makes chabrettes, he makes cabrettes, and he makes musette de corps. He's a really fine, fine maker. I have a cabrette from him, um, which I'm really work- working hard on it. <laughs> and, um, um, well, uh, Nicolas, I don't know him a lot. But he, have a, he had a really, really good reputation uh, because his instruments are, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, near the perfection. And it's strange to have this guy who's making Musette de Cour with this really more tempered instrument and the cabrette. And he makes cabrette with, with chanterelles, which are the uh, conical drones. So really, uh, so if you play with the chanterelle, you have to uh, have like, for example, the minor third we were talking about, um, resonating in the harmonics, and he, he he does it, you know. So his cabrettes are like the finest cabrette you can have because he really works to make them perfect you know, in the sound. Because some when you listen to to cabrette on YouTube something it's awful. Sometimes it's really awful because people they play. Like a flute or another, they don't have the good fingering. It's not beautiful, but Nikolajusie yeah. is always perfect.
1: So Nick, you told me that you've made a couple of instruments yourself, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. I have the. Pret- a couple of. I had the pretension to make some of them.
1: Uh, Sackpipe. Yes, the Swedish style.
2: Yes, exactly, because it's it's the the most well. It's all con- con- conical and it's all parallel bore. So you don't need to have a, a, a metal lathe and uh, you know all these big systems. And it was a way of exploring a little bit, you know, uh, in the instrument, being you know, playing the instrument, reading about the instrument, uh, listening to the instrument, but making the instrument was like allows me to understand some things, you know, how to tune a drone, how to tune a reed, how to to repair a reed. And, uh, you have to learn a lot of things, you know, you work with uh, leather, your plastic, wood, and, uh, yes.
0: And it, it, it's always a good reminder to us that with so many, so many aspects of so many of these art forms, doing is the most important part of the learning. Yes. Play it poorly until you can play it well, dance it poorly until you can dance it better. Build it badly until you learn how to make it not bad, not so bad anymore. Yeah, it's almost, I I think you are probably overly modest about your own pipes, uh, Nick, but it is a good reminder that it's the process of the making, making the dance, making the music, making the song, making the instrument, that is far more important than the object that might or might not result.
2: Yes, that, that's true. And, and you know, uh, I use this what you just said with my pupils. I said, you know, having a job is a thing. The way you've worked, the path you've taken to have this job, to make this thing, you know, that's the important thing. How you made it? Are you proud of what you made? Are you proud of the path you've worked in? Yes. Well, that's good. That because such is life, you know. Buying thing with money, it's nothing, making thing, it's something.
1: As someone who's played a variety of instruments, stringed, fretted, also bagpipes, uh, and having done business with probably three or four different bagpipe makers in my life, I think the relationship between a piper and a pipe maker is different. I. and I, I don't know if you agree or if you would have anything to say about that relationship.
2: Well, uh, yes, it, it, the, all the pipe make they are they are all different. Those guys that make pipes because it's mostly guys. There is girls too. There is a, a, um, Lisa Wolf, which is the, the the wife of Julien Barbance. She makes really fine pipes. She, she's one of the first. And is in the there There is Claire Dug, Duguay. In England, um, but you know they are all different. Some of them are more taciturn; they don't talk a lot. Uh, but when they see that you are, you really have an interest about the instrument, they can talk, and you can talk with them a lot. Um, I visited uh, Raphael Janin's um, uh, uh, workshop, and it was like five hours, absolutely fantastic you know seeing the, the wood in the processing of all the, the different parts his reflections his old pipes he had and so that's a project I have I want to explore this and that what do you think about this you know um, I had a guy in the United States named Seth Hammond he made plastic sack pipas and you know we were talking a lot maybe 10 years ago and he just sent me pipes and I try them and Tell me what you think. Okay, tell me what, you think, what I can improve in this. Uh, so yes, it's a it's a special and unique relationship. Mm-hmm.
1: Our guest this week has been uh, Nicolas Girardin from uh, France, but who has been living in uh, Quebec in Canada. Uh, he is a uh, bagpiper and a teacher, and uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. And thank you, Nick, for being our guest this week. I want to mention that. Nick's group, uh, Le Brie, uh yes. has um, a recording on Spotify, and you can search it. We'll spell it for you. It's L-E-B-R-E-U-I-L.
0: Nick, it's been great to have you. Thanks so much for making time for us and uh, uh, working with us so that we could get our technology squared away so that we could give uh, the insights that you had, the production quality that they deserve. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for being here.
2: Well, thank you for having me, guys. It was a really interesting talking with you.
0: Voices from the Vernacular Music Center is hosted by Roger Landis and Chris Smith and produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the show notes for images, video and audio playlists, guest bios, and our links to online streaming and reference services.
1: And please remember to like, share, and leave reviews. That's how listeners hear about us. We tweet at Woke Academic and VMC Voices. Special thanks to our podcast guests, Nicholas Girardin, our post production engineer, Kevin Stockard. And our VVMC Administrative Coordinator is Heather Belts. Check out her Possibly Haunted podcast. You can find our website at vernacularmusiccenter.org slash podcast.
0: As always, special thanks to our podcast consultant, SeedPod Productions at seedpodmedia.com. See you next time.